in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. But then our New Testament reading is coming from Titus chapter 2. So if you would uh, find the Proverbs 3 passage and then the Titus 2 passage, verses 1 through 10. Of course, the Titus passage will be the text for the sermon. Hear the word of God, our Old Testament reading from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. And then our New Testament reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bun serpents are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the reading and the hearing of your word, both in the Old Testament and from Proverbs, where Solomon is teaching his son, and also in the New Testament from Titus, where Paul is teaching his son in the faith. And the exhortations that we hear. Lord, we pray that as we hear your exhortations, we would recognize them as your law. And that we would delight in your law. That we would not see your laws as a yoke about our necks, but rather as liberating and to living godly before you. Father, bless this, the reading of your word to our hearts and minds, and now grant the strength and unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant and the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we are in this series of sermons from the book of Titus. Now, Titus is a brief book, and so we will get through it quickly. But I would remind you, my reason for preaching from Titus as one of the pastoral epistles is to help lay that foundation for us as God brings to us an organizing pastor and to understand what the nature of his ministry will be 
when the Lord brings him here. Because what we see of Titus is more akin to what we see in our mission works in the OPC when we have church planters and organizing pastors serving among us. And that his work will be, yes, to shepherd us. His work will also be to engage in outreach and evangelism and to bring in the sheep that he doesn't have already within this fold. And then the particular work of preparing the men of the congregation that God would raise up from among you and others that he may bring into the life of the church and his providence, those who would be elders in particular, deacons as well, but elders in particular, so that this is no longer a mission work, but will be its own congregation. And we rejoice when this happens. Uh, the work in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, has come to this place with uh, the election of elders, with the call of a pastor, uh, all of the motions regarding the organization of that mission work came to our April meeting of Presbytery. All that remains now is a special meeting of Presbytery to be called and then a service of worship to celebrate and where vows are taken in the organizing or the particularization of that congregation. It's a day of rejoicing. Uh, usually a night of rejoicing when the service takes place for the whole of the presbytery to celebrate with the mission work. And so we're looking down the corridor of time here for that day here in this place. Uh, the only thing, in, in fact, it's a session meeting of that mission work to, uh, Tuesday night. The one for here is Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday night. The only thing that's standing in the way right now of going ahead and calling that meeting is we want to be in the building that God has provided. And the renovations aren't quite complete. We're not quite ready to move into the church building that the Lord has provided for us. But soon, and so I look for probably sometime in June, that that work will be organized. And think about that as we look ahead to when the Lord does the same thing here at, um, at Peninsula Reformed Presbyterian Church. That day, I believe, before God is coming. And so that's the reason for this series of sermons. Last time, we looked at both the spiritual and moral requirements or qualifications for elders and the work, the specific work of the elders. And one of the things I told you in that morning sermon last time or the first sermon, because the second sermon's almost a morning sermon, or late morning, maybe not the sermon, but when the service starts for the second service. But in that first service, one of the things that I said to you is, these are not qualifications that are simply ideals that maybe a man can aspire to. Now, these are bottom-line qualifications. Not that any man will have them in perfection. Not in this life, we know that. But I also made the point that those qualifications that are especially to be seen in the elders are also qualifications that are to be seen in the rest of us as well. Not just the elders. Especially in the elders. They must be manifest in the elders. But they ought to be manifest in you as well. In other words, you can't say, you know, I can be pugnacious. I can be quick-tempered. Um, I, I, I can be greedy for money. You know, I can get drunk. <laughs> no. Those are requirements for every Christian. And one of the things that we saw in that message as well is the only one that fully embodies all those qualifications is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we are to emulate him. And as we come to chapter 2, we see that what I said last time is true because some of the things that we see in chapter 1 about those qualifications are now given as exhortations to the various groups that are within the church. We're really moving, especially this morning, from what we call the indicative, that is what we are in Christ Jesus, to the imperative, that is the commands of God, how then shall we live with this series of of exhortations that come. These exhortations come to Titus, and he is to then deliver these exhortations to groups within the church. So let's look at how this text begins. 
He says, but as for you, now he's speaking to Titus himself. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is something that's very important for us to recognize. You cannot take sound doctrine and sound living and tear them apart from each other. Or, let's put it this way. You can't take orthodoxy. You should know what orthodox means. You're a member of an orthodox Presbyterian church. And and sometimes that title is one that we have to explain. Because people wonder when they hear that I'm orthodox Presbyterian church, why my beard isn't longer. (laughs) They think of another kind of orthodox church. But orthodoxy means straight doctrine or straight truth. Orthopraxy is straight living. It's how we live. You cannot separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right doctrine leads to godly living. You can't tear them apart. And, uh, and there, there are always movements in the church that try to do so. I think of pietism as you're coming out of the Protestant Reformation and, and, and then coming down further, there were those in pietists. It's all about loving Jesus. It's all about how you live. We're not going to worry ourselves with doctrine. There's too much confusion. There's too much conflict and difference of opinion about this. It never works. There is not going to be godliness apart from a right understanding of the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. We wouldn't even understand the power which we walk in godliness, which is the, the, the afternoon sermon or the second sermon today. That's where the focus is going to go in the second service today, apart from understanding the truth. I remember many years ago going into one of our mission works and the, 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 the session had to do something that was a little difficult, and that is to tell a group of ladies they couldn't study a particular book. Um, it, it wasn't sound, but a lot of evangelicals were reading and studying this particular teacher. And so we said, no, you can't study that. But here's some suggestions of things you can study. And I knocked on the door when I went to visit them a week or so later and to stay in one of the homes of one lady met me at the door. She said, i got a pwn to pick with you. <laughs> I may have told you that before. I don't know if I have or not. I said, okay, pick the bone. And I came in, and she says, what do you mean the session's telling us we can't study such and such book? I won't tell you what it was. And I said, well, the session's telling you can't study that book. It's not sound. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't good things in the book. It doesn't mean that it might not be different if we had a minister here that could help oversee a particular study But we want to place in your hands things that are sound and trustworthy from cover to cover. And she began to soften a little bit. But then she says, since I've been in the OPC, all I ever hear is doctrine, 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 doctrine. And I said, what's doctrine? She looked at me and said, all doctrine is, what does the Bible say? That's all doctrine is. Yes, we are concerned about doctrine because we're concerned about what the Bible teaches. It matters what you think. It matters what you know. And it impacts what, how you live. Orthodoxy produces orthopraxy. And if in your life it doesn't, Let's say I handed out a systematic theology test and all of you took the test. and You aced the test. You knew all the right answers. And yet it's not having an impact in your life, in how you live. Guess what? You don't own the doctrine that you may be able to know. It's the way it works. It's the truth that transforms us. And this is why... Paul tells Titus, before he gives the exhortations to the various groups, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he designates the groups that Titus is to instruct. 
and they are older men. I don't even mind saying old men. They're older women. I will not say old women. Now, some people, you can't say things like that anymore in our culture, but we can say it in here. Oh, it's being recorded. I'm going to see this in some strange way. But still, I've learned my lesson. I am not going to say old women. <laughs> I don't mind calling you men old. No, the older men, the older women, through the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and then bond servants or slaves. These are the different groups in the churches on the island of Crete, and these are the exhortations that Titus, from the Apostle Paul, is to give to these different groups. We're talking very much now on how then shall you live. How then shall you live as an older man? How then shall you live as an older woman? How shall you live as a younger woman? How shall you live as a younger man? How shall you live if in God's providence you're a bond slave? That's what we find in this text. So here older men, not just the elders that are addressed in chapter 1, but all of the older men in the congregation. Older men are to be sober-minded. Rendering sober-minded. Because it's not only talking here about avoiding drunkenness. Oftentimes we use the word being sober, that's what it means. It means that you are not addicted to wine, you're not addicted to intoxicating drugs. It's okay to understand it in that context, but it's a broader word than that. Older men are to be sober-minded, that is, they're to be serious-minded. They're to be serious-minded. They're to take seriously things that are to be taken seriously. Does that mean that older men are to be stuffy and have no sense of humor? Well, of course not. But, but when to be humorous and when to be serious, this is what is important. Now, you guys know me and you know that I have a sense of humor. Sometimes it's a bit biting. Some of you have been the object of that. Because I love you. That's the way we do things in the South, isn't it? Some from the North don't understand it, but we understand what it's like. We tease the people that we love. There's a time for that kind of thing. But I've had people say to me, you're a different person when you stand in the pulpit. You know, Where's the humor when you stand in the pulpit? And I say, no, I'm not a different person to what I stand in the pulpit. But I will tell you this, I want to take seriously what God takes seriously. And when we are gathered together in the assembly to worship before the face of God, that is a serious moment. And it's a moment for sober-mindedness. And much of the church has forgotten that. And that's what's sad. And sometimes... That's an impetus for groups coming together and coming to the OPC and saying, can you help us plant a church? Sometimes that's the impetus. And sometimes people are looking to come to something that's, that's substantive, that takes seriously what the Bible says, and takes seriously in particular what happens when we come together in the assembly, we're called together to worship the Lord. What happens from the opening greeting to the benediction? All of us are to be so And the old men are to teach the others by being sober-minded about things that are serious, things that are substantive. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Doesn't this sound like what we just read in chapter 1 of elders? Doesn't it? Especially the elders among the older men. But the rest of you older men. And we've got some older men here. We've got some old men here. Self-controlled, sound in faith. There's the doctrinal component. 
You see, you never pull apart the indicative from the imperative. The, the doctrine from the commandments. You never pull these things apart. They're always intermixed. Sound in faith. That is knowing the truth. The whole counsel of God. This is what's to characterize the older men who are among us. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. This is to be the character, characteristics of the hoary heads. With some of us, it's what's left is hoary. Of the more seasoned and mature among us. Your men, your older men, are to be mature and you're to demonstrate that maturity. These are the exhortations that come to you. And you know who you are. Although there may be some say, well, am I a younger man? Am I an older man? Frankly, I don't know when I stopped being a younger man and started being old. I don't even remember when I stopped being a boy and started to be a man. I don't know if anybody else has had that experience where suddenly you wake up and you realize, I'm not a boy anymore, I'm a man. That's a difficult question. And then when you move from younger man to older man, it's a, that's a difficult question to answer too. Am I an older man? Am I an old man? I'm getting there. No, I'm already there. But these things are to mark my life as all the older men who are here. Then he turns his attention to the older women. Not the old women, but the older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. This is very serious, uh, very, very similar to being sober-minded and serious about things that are serious. The older women are not to be frivolous, especially about things that are serious. Again, I don't mean to say that the older women shouldn't have a sense of humor. Even as I think the older men, of course, have senses of humor. But the older women need to be a model of maturity. That would be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Now, oftentimes we think about gossip. Why do people think of ladies when they think about gossip? Have you ever been to an all-men's barbershop? I get my hair cut at a place in Chilhowee, Virginia. Been doing it for years in Shelhowie, Virginia. And they're all Christians, the, the men, the barbers are there. And so are a lot of the people that come come in to get their hair cut. But I've said before, man, you could you could fill up a hot air balloon with all the hot air that's coming out in this in this place. <clears throat> there, there's a lot of frivolity that goes on there. No 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 men can be gossips too. And so can ladies. And, and, and what is gossip? Gossip is often saying something to someone that you shouldn't tell them, even if it's the truth. But oftentimes, it's saying something to someone else that's, that's not true. Because the story has grown. Older women are to be those who are careful in their speech and in what they say. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. It doesn't mean that an older woman can't have a glass of wine. Just like an elder can have a glass of wine, but he's not to be addicted to it. Neither are the older women to be addicted to it. Drunkenness is forbidden in Scripture. The moderate use of alcohol is not, it's actually commended in Scripture. They're not to be slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. That is, older women are to be teachers. And, and we need to stop here for a moment. In, in, in our circles, that is, conservative Presbyterian circles, and in the OPC in particular, we believe the injunctions in Scripture regarding to serve as elders in the church and who is to serve as teachers in the church. It has to be men. 
The Bible is clear on that matter. Although a lot of people try to muddy the water, it's being muddied again, even within our circles. There are discussions that are seeking to muddy the water about these things. But, but Paul is quite clear when he says, I don't allow women to teach men. He has reasons for that. Sometimes, though, because we believe that the ordained offices are reserved by God to men, there's almost a reflex in some of our circles that women shouldn't... It is contrary to what the Bible says right here. There are women that are extraordinary, outstanding teachers of the Word of God. Better than a lot of men. Doesn't mean they should be teaching men. No, Paul says no to that. But they should be teaching women and children in particular. Some of the best teachers I know are women. And I won't say that I've not learned something from some of them. I've sat in classes before that a woman was teaching predominantly women, and I love to eavesdrop because I pick up a lot. We need to recognize that this is not denigrating women, but it's recognizing the order that God has placed. And that order is in creation itself. It's not just in the fall. But older women are to be teachers. And that doesn't mean that every older woman is able to take an easel and a whiteboard and, 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 and teach from the Word of God in, in, in a comprehensive sort of way. Some women are able to do that, others are not. But, but all older women are to be teachers by the way they live their lives, by the things they whisper to the younger women. And in particular, it says that they are to train the younger women. Look at what the text says. That they teach that which is good, that is the women. Teachers to teach that which is good. And so train the younger women. So younger women are addressed as well, but indirectly in the text. They're not addressed directly, directly by Paul through Titus. But by Paul through Titus, through the older women, to the younger women. And there are things then that the text tells us about the younger women and the things that they are to be learning to be learning from the older women in the congregation. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. These are the things that the older women are to teach the younger women, first by being these things themselves, by example. By loving their husbands, by loving their children, by submitting to their husbands, to demonstrate what it's like to be a godly woman. And this is what the older women are to be teaching the younger women. Now, again, we have to be careful as we're reading these things because oftentimes we have categories in our minds that are not necessarily biblical categories. And there are some in our circles that I think push this too far. I'm talking about conservative reform circles. There are some that frown upon a young lady getting any advanced education beyond maybe high school. Why? Because she's going to be in the home. Let me tell you something about my daughter. I sent my daughter to college. Not just high school. She's valedictorian in high school. She's a lot smarter than I am. Sent her to college. Sent her to Covenant College. My daughter, studying at Covenant College, she called me up and she said, I'm going to change my minor. I think I want to change my minor. This was maybe in her freshman year even. Maybe it was early sophomore year. I can't recall. I said, why is that? And she said, well, her major was uh, English literature and her minor was education. She said, Frank, I don't see... I don't see the education department being that far from secular education, sprinkling a little Christianity on top, not understanding the nature of sin in the child. She says, I want to change my mind to Bible. She says, if I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to teach at a Christian school. I'm going to need to know the Bible. I'm going to know theology. 
if I'm going to be a mother, this was before she was thinking about being a wife or a mother. She is a mother now. She's been a wife for 20 years, and she's been a mother for 17 years, and she's given me four grandchildren, one who was with us two weeks ago when I was here with you, my granddaughter. Um, But she told me, she says, if I'm a mother and a homeschooler, I need to know what the Bible says. And she's an extraordinary homeschooling mother. And especially the 17-year-old, the things that he's studying. I actually approached her about walking through courses with Reform Forum with him for his senior year in Ventilian Apologetics. And she talked to my son-in-law about it. He has finished his science curriculum already. There are other courses he could take, but he would prefer to take the theology courses along with me. And he says, well, I would frown on him not taking these science courses, but if he's going to substitute theology, let's do it. And so that's what we're going to do in his senior year. Yeah. (laughs) My daughter is way brighter than I am. And I bounce things off of her, (laughs) of what's going on in the culture and the world around us, because she is deeply read in these things, because she's concerned for her own kids and for their own education. Beloved, that's a high, high, high calling. And I want the younger women to be as equipped as they can possibly be equipped. And if that means higher education, if that means a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or even a Ph.D., then so be it. Sometimes we read these things and it says for her to labor within the home. And I do think that there needs to be a a focus upon the home because it's so important. This is where we need bright young women who are equipped because they're the ones that are nurturing and predominant. It's an exceedingly high calling. But, but some people read this and say a woman should never work outside the house under any circumstances. I don't see that in the Bible. Yes, if a woman is a wife, and if a woman is a mother, there is to be a focal point upon the home. You see that in Proverbs 31. This woman that is revered by her husband and her children, they stand up and call her blessed. This woman, this is the most industrious woman you've ever seen if you read Proverbs 31. Now, her labors are unto the provision of that home and the discipling of those children. That's why those children cry up and call her blessed. It's why her husband admires her and says what I say. There is no way I could do what my wife does or what my daughter does. I am not equipped to do what they can do. But we live in a culture today that sees the housewife and the stay-at-home mother that vilifies that. And I want to tell you something right now. That's the highest calling on the planet except for the call to be a pastor. It's higher than the calling to be a king. I believe that. Because the covenant family is that fundamental unit. And the home is her domain And a smart husband knows it. He knows it. And he recognizes it. And he praises her for her labors in that. But it it bothers me both extremes. Whether the extreme is, well, women who, they don't work. Why don't you have a job? What do you mean have a job? When do I sleep? (laughs) Especially when the children are little. What do you mean to have a job? You know, one you get paid for. (laughs) It's crazy what's happening in our culture. And guess what? Moms aren't raising children. Look at what's happening in the culture. And when fathers are absent in many homes today, 
completely. They're not even there. We wonder why the culture is crumbling. It's because the family is. And that's even true families that are not in covenant with God. By God's design, the family is still a stabilizing force in a culture and a society. You can witness cultures that esteem family, that don't have Christ, and you can see a stability in those cultures that where the family is not emphasized, it's not there. But all the more in the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the highest calling is to be a pastor of a church. I heard R.C. Sproul say one time that he was speaking at a conference and <clears throat> some starry eye young guy comes up to him afterwards and wants him to sign his book, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't mind R.C. Of course, he's with the Lord now, so he's not signing autographs anymore. But I don't mind R.C. signing his books. I do mind when he signed Reformation study Bibles, though. <laughs> or John MacArthur signed John MacArthur study Bibles. Because well, I didn't write the Bible. That's why. <laughs> don't sign that. Say, no, give me one of my other books. I'll sign that one for you. I let two of my students have it who had autographed copies, one by R.C. and one by John MacArthur in my class one day. says, don't you dare have somebody sign the, your Bible like they wrote the Bible. And I don't think those men meant anything by that because they were very instrumental in the study notes that are in the Bibles. <clears throat> but I heard him say one time, this, this guy came up to him and said, uh, you know, what was it like when you were just a pastor? And R.C. sort of went into a rage. What do you mean, just a pastor? I'm not able. I'm not worthy. I'm not man enough to be a pastor. That's the highest calling on the planet. That's why I write books and why I teach at a seminary. My calling as regional home missionary is not as high as the organizing pastor that will come here. Even if he's some young guy that comes right out of seminary, doesn't have any experience, that calling to shepherd this flock in this place is higher than mine. That helps to equip in many places this taking place. That's the highest calling. I don't know of another calling higher than, than being a wife and a mother. In terms of its significance. And I want our young lady, I, I want our young lady studying theology. I, I know some of the study materials that are available for women's studies are drivel, even those that are sound. And I understand the ache that some ladies have had. Why can't we study Burkhoff? Well, why can't you study Burkhoff? I think that's great. One of our ministers, Mike Myers, he takes the, the young ladies in his church at about 13 or 14 years old and he catechizes them. He teaches them the confession of faith and catechisms. The ladies, the young ladies, not just the young men to ground them in the Word of God. The pendulum swings on this thing from one extreme to the other. We don't want to be on either ones of those extremes. And I esteem and I honor the wives and the mothers among us. There's a reason why Mother's Day comes before Father's Day. Although I wish neither of them were on Sunday, because that's the Lord's Day, but they are... There's a reason why the athletes say hi, Mom, on TV. It's a high, high, high calling. And if anybody demeans it, we should say, shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, the women among us need to know the Bibles just as much as the men among us. And it shouldn't be men's studies to study the deep things and women's studies to, to study other. I recall in one of our churches that when it was a mission work, there were two of the women in the church. I would not call them older ladies because both of them got pregnant again. <laughs> um, but they were mature ladies. One of them was the daughter of a minister and the wife of an elder. And the other was the wife of an elder. And we started the mission work. They started a ministry called, um, um, I just forgot what they called it. I, oh, 
What did they call it? Something conversations is what they called it. I cannot believe that because it was a real catchy name. But what they did, they came to the session with this idea. says, we want to take the, the teenage girls, maybe 13 up to 17, something like that. Kitchen conversations. That's what it was. Kitchen conversations. And we want to bring them together. And one of them was an extraordinary cook. Both were good cooks. But one of them, when I found out I was going to their house for Sunday lunch, I always smiled. Now, we have loads of great cooks in our churches and our mission works. But this lady could put on a feast. And so it was at her house. And she would teach these young girls a recipe. And they would make it together. And then the other lady would teach them what the catechism says about the Ten Commandments. (laughs) So they had a time of studying theology. And if you've ever read the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments, that's the greatest exposition of the Ten Commandments that there is. And, uh, and, and, And then they would teach them to make a recipe. Then they would eat it together. And I thought it was a great idea. Now, the teenage girls the first time didn't think so, some of them. Mom, do we have to go? I don't want to go learn a recipe, that kind of thing. After the first time, they said, when are we going to do it again? That's taking seriously what the older women are doing with the young women here in this text. Equipping those younger women to be what we see in this text. Now, let's move more quickly here now. And then we see regarding the younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be controlled. Show yourself in all respects, be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, when you look at this carefully, it's hard to parse. When is Paul speaking to Titus as a young man? And when is Paul speaking of what Titus is to teach to the young men in the congregation? It kind of all seems to be wrapped up and flow together as we see it in the text. Just as Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, this text ends with a similar kind of exhortation to to Titus when you go down to the end of the chapter that's here. But, But this is about the younger men, and we have some younger men here among us, and some of you might say, ah, I'm not a younger man yet. I'm just a teenager. No, I'm talking, it's talking to you right now. It's talking to you guys right now, as well as some of the younger men <clears throat> that, are, that, that are among you. Like he says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Even now. Even now. Now, when I get older, you know, then I'll need to be self controlled. No, now. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. That is, you demonstrate and teach by your faithfulness to the commandments of God. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And what's what's translated here as sound speech means sound doctrine and teaching. Young men, should be hungry for the deeper things of God. And I'm thankful thankful we have that among the young people that are here, the younger men that are here among us. An interest in theology, an interest in the deeper things of God. Start now. Don't say, well, I'll put that off till later. No, now for the young men. And then after young men, he turns his attention to bondservants. And this is difficult for us because we don't have this category in our culture today. And, and, and you can't just look at it and say, well, let's talk about bosses and, and, and people that are employed by them. No, it's not. They're two different institutions entirely. It's talking about bondservants. It's talking about those probably who were indebted or who fell into financial crisis and therefore bonded themselves to members of the church and so they serve as their servants or their their slaves of course only for seven years and then they're to be freed all these things are built into the system of slavery as we see it especially among the jews but these are bond servants 
Look at what he says to them. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Even the bond servants. And now what we see here is that this is the family in view. That has older women, it has younger women, it has younger men and it has bond servants who are typically within the family itself and therefore under the covenant. Remember, circumcision was to be applied to the servants as well as to the sons, the sign of the covenant. And the bond servants, even in that low estate in the culture, were to live godly lives. They were to live godly lives. They are members of the church of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says again. To be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Because they're to be submissive and respectful to their masters. Not pilfering, that is not stealing when his back is turned. Showing all good faith. There's something that's lost in our culture today. And that is recognizing that we're to be content in God's providence in our lives. But the issue of slavery is a complex and difficult issue. There's no question about that. It's very difficult. And in no way can you take the history of slavery as it existed in our country and draw a comparison to the way slavery was outlined in the Pentateuch or even practiced in the church of Jesus Christ. Men-stealers were to be stoned to death. Men-stealers were to be stoned to death. That kind of slavery. And that's a mark upon not just our culture, but the Western culture in terms of slavery. But what we read in Scripture is not this militant view of overthrowing whoever is in authority over me, but rather recognizing God's providence and being content in it. And so rather than the Scriptures themselves saying, throw off the bonds of your slavery, run away from your master, it says submit to your master. And it tells masters how masters are to treat their slaves. In a godly manner. We have to recognize that all of us, to some extent, handed what we are in our status by God's providence. We shouldn't be we shouldn't apologize for it. That's another thing today. If if in God's providence you find yourself in a situation that's considered privileged, then you're asked to apologize for that and to renounce that. When it's God who gave you the talents that he gave you. And he gave you more than he gave another servant. Now, how do I use these talents in a God-glorifying way that honors men made in the image of God? We have to recognize these things. And I'm not saying that we should remain static and shouldn't seek to improve our circumstances in life, God opens up those doors in His providence too. But there needs to be a measure, according to Scripture, of resting in God's providence and glorifying Him in the estate that we find ourselves in. This is the teaching of the Apostle Paul in his epistles, and it's his teaching here. Now very quickly, because I've said too much in some of these things, I want you to note how these paragraphs end. Look at the end, for instance, of verse 5. This is in the instruction that's given to the older women in training the younger women. That the word of God may not be reviled. Then look at at, at the end of verse 8. In, in the instructions that are given to the younger men, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then in the ending of the paragraph regarding bond servants, this is what Paul says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
The reason for our obedience to God in the circumstances that we are in, the reason we are to obey the exhortations that come to us in the circumstances where God has placed us, whether older men or older women or younger women or younger men or even bond servants, is that God may be glorified and that God's name may not be put to shame. And we see that in those qualifications at the end of each of those paragraphs, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Because if older women and younger women do not behave in the way that these exhortations say, then people will say, what's the good with your theology? What's the good with your gospel that you preach? It's not changed you. The same thing can be seen seen with the young men. So that an opponent may be put to shame and have nothing evil to say about you. If a young man acts the way he's supposed to, according to these exhortations, it stops the mouth of those that would revile them or come against them. I know people continue to shout, but it becomes hollow if there's no substance in what they're saying about you. And you live this way and it shuts the mouth of the blasphemer. And then regarding the bond slaves or bond servants, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When a bond servant obeys these exhortations, it adorns the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God our Savior. The doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the fruit of the Spirit is submission in each of these realms. In, in the scriptures. And our lives, not just the bond servants, all of our lives, we should live them in such a way that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by walking in obedience to His commands. And these are the commands that He has given to us. Now, when we come back after our break, we're going to look at the ground for these exhortations. More importantly, we're going to look at the power. How do I obey these commandments? Where do I get the power? Where do I get the strength to be what we've been told to be in the text? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even this portion of your word that is Simply exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. And Father, we see ourselves, we see that we fall short of your commands, however they come to us, whether it be from the Ten Commandments or from, from Titus 2. Lord, we long to be faithful and to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Savior. So, Lord, we pray, even as we return shortly to your worship, that you would teach us that source of power and strength, which is the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.